Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Okay, we're back at the Behind the Bits podcast. Today, I've got with me Dan West. How you doing, Dan? I'm, I'm doing all right. It's been uh, less than 24 hours since we saw each other, so uh, it's uh, a good day. I, I like to think so. Yeah, we were talking about that open mic and my uh, eye sockets of doom. They do actually hurt today. It was those little chicken things, uh, not not the chicken, the yellow parts, but the white parts had little pointy things on them. Okay. <laughs> and they dug in a little bit. That's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> You know the the things the things we do for comedy for four people, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's definitely the quarantine is making comedy get way weirder and yes. I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh I, I've seen I've seen some pretty wild stuff. I go back to feeds that I wasn't on and I just scroll through until I see somebody playing a character or something and I'll watch that. And one dude was wearing these big glasses in his car and talking with a German accent and uh, wanting, wanting to be in motion picture shows and stuff. So it was, it was an old timey thing. It was, it was neat. <laughs> well, I actually, I really have enjoyed what you've been doing uh, with the drops open mic, uh, doing the characters. I think that you more than anybody else are really taking advantage of the change in medium. Um, yeah. Cause other, like we're all writing jokes. We're all trying to figure out, what our place is in this, but what you've been doing, doing it like sometimes the Alex Jones style thing. And like with the eye socket thing yesterday, you're doing stuff that would be much more difficult to do in a traditional stand up setting. So I think that it's, it's definitely interesting what you're doing, taking advantage of the medium. Yeah. I'm really only doing it because I don't feel comfortable doing my normal set. So (laughs) I'm looking for any way to do it. Funny thing is, I put like an hour into recording uh, the uh, intro to that and making my backdrop <laughs> and finding circus music to go behind it. So it, it wasn't it wasn't exactly writing, but I guess it's creating. Yeah, it, it all counts, <laughs> man. I mean, I started a YouTube series, which I think two years ago I would have thought was the dumbest thing in the world because I'm not actually doing anything different, but I'm uh-huh. trying to be creative somehow. And I started writing the blog again. So it's not all stand up, but you just you gotta find some kind of outlet so you don't stagnate during this. Yeah, yeah. Well look at what Brent Terhoon's doing. I mean his stuff is all over the place. He and is uh so funny. It, yeah, the funny thing is is he has to explain to people that he's playing a character and it's ironic and oh <laughs> Yeah, and he's still like People will catch his videos and like, I feel like people see what they want to see all the time. 
Like I, I run into this. Uh, I get into Facebook fights because I'm self-actualized as all hell. And <laughs> people will then, because I have a public profile, jump onto my profile, look at it, see that I do comedy. Like, oh, well, you're not making me laugh. But they yeah. ignore at the very top, there's a banner saying, this is my personal page. For comedy, go to my comedy page. Mm. Like, if, if you're going to do the dive and look and see who I am, do, look at all of it. Don't. Yeah. Same with Brent. They see that he does this hardcore Trump-supporting YouTube character, but they ignore the fact that he, on his first album, had a character named Coney Danza and yeah. <laughs> in a hot dog suit. Yeah, <laughs> is a really, really talented comedian, and a lot of people just aren't getting that. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> the, I've know some people I've talked to. They have like one social media outlet where they're real, where they where they're their real selves, and uh, and the rest of them they do the comedy persona, but uh, uh, and they don't like separate their comedy pages or anything like that. And it's kind of funny when you see the real versus versus the uh, what they put out there just as the comedians. It's all it's all kind of bleeding over for me at this point. Um, like I don't really do politics on stage. I'm trying to get a little bit more into it, but I want yeah. to do it in a different way than what everybody else is doing. And I want to do it through my specific lens. But then on social media, I'm talking about politics and I'll throw jokes in there. Uh, like I'm pretty sure today I told someone to go jack off to a Lee Greenwood song. Uh-huh. <laughs> but like, I just, I had this image in my head. They, they weren't just doing it aggressively. They were alone in the bathroom crying and their voice was wavering while they're doing it. Yeah. Like just this whole picture paint. I just, <laughs> 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 like, and so all of the different social medias and the fast, they're all blending except for my Instagram. That is mostly my cat. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that one stays pure. Yeah. <laughs> so we've known each other for a while. Um, what I don't know is how long have you been doing stand up? Well, the first time I went on stage was about 11 and a half years ago. Okay. Um, but I wasn't really taking it seriously until probably about seven or eight years ago. Okay. Um, the first couple of years, it was one open mic a week in a fairly major market. So I'd be getting two to three minutes uh, or like I started to get the occasional showcase, but I wasn't really trying. Um, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't putting in the effort necessary. I would tell people that I wanted to do comedy, but I wouldn't put in the effort necessary to do comedy. Exactly. Um, yeah. And then a couple years before I moved back to the Midwest, I started jumping into it more because I was having more fun with it again. Um, and I started to get the responses that I wanted to get. So it made me feel good. And I wanted more of that. All right. Thinking about when, b- before you started comedy, did you have any comics that just kind of stood out to you as somebody who would be a great comic and I I want to be a comic like them? Uh, well, I'm going to name drop here. Um, when I met Carlos Mencia, <laughs> I did mm. not perform with him because I think his fans would fucking hate me. Uh, <laughs> but when I met him, I, I thanked him. I said, look, Separate from all the negative stuff, like the, the joke ceiling accusation, I didn't say that part out loud, but he knew what I was talking about. Uh, uh, I said, separate from that, 
there were just a couple of comics that made stand-up as an amateur seem possible. Uh, they made it because I, when I first started watching stand-up, it was celebrities doing comedy in theaters. You had your Chris Rock, uh, you had Bob Saget, like these people who have done movies, they've done television, and they are doing theaters. Mm-hmm. And then in the late 90s, early 2000s, Dane Cook, Dave Chappelle, and Carlos Mencia started showing smaller venues, started showing that it was possible to be working out material. You would see someone do five minutes on premium blend, and then you would see their 30 minute special and you would see how that bit had evolved. Mm -hmm. So Dane Cook, Dave Chappelle and Carlos Mencia were the first ones to show me the building blocks to make it seem like something that if you worked at it, anybody could do. Uh And so that's, that was my motivation to really, uh, to try when someone told me that I should get up at an open mic. I was like, you know, it, it seems possible because before that it had been Seinfeld and Tim Allen and like these famous, famous people. Mm-hmm. That's funny that you mentioned Mencia and, and uh, Dane Cook. Those are the two that my son found those. Uh, there was like that mind of Mencia was on yeah. for a while and he was, he, he had to see that and he discovered Dane Cook and showed him to me. And the funny thing is, is that's when, I was raising them and I wasn't even thinking about stand up at that time. So I wasn't watching it. I wasn't going to shows very often or anything like that. But uh, Dane Cook, especially, you know, the physicality and the non sequitur stuff and just screaming yeah. and stuff like that. I thought, you know, he, I know a lot of people uh, say that, you know, he's, he's a hack or whatever, but I thought he was hilarious. And well, I think that Dane Cook suffered from, uh, like he suffered from expectations that were too high because his first comedy central half hour is still amazing. Yeah. There's a lot of jumping around and extra stuff and some screaming that is not totally necessary, but it fits his style. And like, there's still some stuff in there that is really funny. Mm -hmm. And that half hour was the product of 10 years of work. And then he did his first hour and that was, a lot of that same half hour stuff and then more. And so that was still 10 years of work. And then a year later they wanted another hour. And so there was stuff that hadn't made it into the first hour. And so there was some new stuff and some tweaked stuff. So it was still decent. It wasn't as good as the first one. Mm-hmm. A year later they wanted another hour. And so now we're getting into, he's had what, six, seven months to write an hour of material. It's not going to be as good. And he's going to lead into. Right. The tropes. He's going to yeah. the, the jumping around and screaming. And there were still moments of really, really funny shit. Like, Vicious Circle was not a great special. Mm-hmm. But, like, when he was talking about interacting with his dad and talking about problems he's having, and his dad just like, I was in Korea. Like, that is solid. Yeah. Like, and that's, like, I have a similar joke to that where I was talking about when I was in Iraq, a friend was complaining to me when I called them on the phone. I was like, well, I mean, we got bombed 15 minutes ago, so I don't really give a shit that your dog knocked over the trash can. Yeah. <laughs> and so Dane Cook, I just, I feel like they wanted too much from him too quickly. And if he had been allowed to grow in a little bit more obscurity for a little bit longer, he would be one of the greats. But instead, he's kind of a caricature, just like Seinfeld became for a while with the, what's the deal? Like, yeah. Dane Cook 
isn't like he's talented, but he's not looked at the same way as he was. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that half hour special was the first thing I saw. And then, then I saw the other one. One thing I have to say is if he's on a special, I'm going to watch the whole thing. Uh, I have watched my wife and I have turned on some Netflix specials lately that I can't get through 10 minutes and I just oh, turn it off okay. and I, I won't say who it is. Um, but some of them are on the current you list. Can, <laughs> Steelhorn's not going to watch this. You can call him out by name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Christy Delilah or whatever his name is. I, I, that's the one I, I had to turn off. Special. Um, I haven't watched his stuff in a while just because his, his style isn't for me. It's a little bit snarkier than I like. Yeah. Uh, I think he's a really good joke writer, but I don't care for his style. Yeah. Uh, but then there are some specials coming out that are just phenomenal. Taylor Tomlinson's special dropped uh, like a month and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And that's incredible. Burt Kreischer had a new special that I really enjoyed. Uh, so there's some stuff on there that is great. And then there's some stuff where it feels like their agent got them a special tied to somebody else's special. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, you can have Chris Rock, but if you also take this guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're very. Um, I, I, it's just like stuff that you've seen in clubs that you you, you didn't really enjoy. So that's kind of kind of what it is. Um, so in listening to your album, I don't know if you noticed the ticker I got down here. Not too friendly, but prompt and polite, which is available on iTunes and Amazon, and probably a bunch of other places too. So I listened to that to that album through, and I learned things about you I didn't know. So I need to <laughs> okay. I, I I need to go back and uh, say, okay, um, first of all, where are you originally from? Uh, I moved around a bunch as a kid. Um, I was born in Milwaukee, uh, but I call Champaign, Illinois, home because that's where I was from fourteen to about nineteen. Mm-hmm. So that's where I did the most growing up. And it's where I became an adult. So Champagne's home. Thank you. Hi, kitty cat. <laughs> yeah, Champagne's home. Uh, it's not where I lived, I guess, the longest. But as a kid, it's where I lived the longest. And it's where I did the most developing as a person. Mm-hmm. And what were uh, what, what did you do when you got out of high school? Uh, well, I fucked off for about a year. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and then I joined the Army. Um, uh-huh. I joined the Army when I was 19, and uh, I had talked to the Marines and the Army when I was in high school, but my family was just violently opposed to it, so that held me off for a little while. Mm-hmm. But once, like, I got accepted to a couple of colleges when I was 19, and just felt like, I don't know, college wouldn't have been the right move for me at that point, and... I was getting into trouble. I was selling drugs. I was, I was like the poster child for someone who should join the army. Yeah. (laughs) For the most part, it was a good experience. Obviously not all of it. I was a medical discharge, but for the most part, I think it made me into a better human, which some people have said is scary. This is me as a better person. Yeah. (laughs) So when you're, when you're doing your stint in the army, obviously you were in um, combat and uh, and in Iraq. So tell me about that. Did did humor help you at all through that or what, you know, what got you through that because obviously from your act, you know, you went through some shit there. 
Well, humor has always been a big thing for me. My dad really, as a kid, was your classic dad joke guy. And uh, he really got me into humor. And then the first exposure I had to stand-up was my stepmother. Uh, she was, uh, I think she still is, a professor. And one of the classes she would teach was about nonverbal communication. And she would show clips of stand-up uh, muted. So you could see sort of what you thought they were talking about, what emotions they were uh, portraying. Mm. So even before I joined the army, I was big into humor. I wrote for the school paper and did a lot of opinion pieces and goofing off. And then when I got to Iraq, uh, I would uh, rather than there were internet cafes everywhere. And so just rather than uh, sending out individual letters to the dozen 15, 20 people that I was sending letters out to just once a week, I would write almost like a newsletter. And I learned really quickly that people didn't want to know what was actually happening. They wanted surface level trouble. And then they wanted to be told that I was okay. Mm. So I threw a lot of jokes into there to sort of give them the impression of, Oh, so I mean, if he's joking around, everything's gotta be okay. Like, I would tell them, oh, you know, there were mortars or oh, the food really sucks here. Oh, my God, it's so hot and I'm dehydrated. But I would mm. never give serious detail uh, and just lots and lots of jokes to uh, to make my family worry less about me. And so not having to worry about their worries helped me a lot. Mm. You know, it's funny how things changed from Desert Storm to... Operation Iraqi Freedom, or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, the, it <laughs> yeah, it you know, in Desert Storm, that was the first war that we knew everything that was going on, and we wanted to know. I mean, that was all that was on the news. Yeah. Um, and you know, y- you saw the bombs going off. the The people, the um, reporters, were with the soldiers, uh, seeing the fight go on, and people wanted to see that. And just in you know, not too many years, or, you know, less than 20 years, it changed to the point where you're right. The public didn't want to know. They, uh, if, if you talked about somebody dying in Iraq, um, you know, even though it was happening every day, they would talk about it like once a month. And oh, yeah, because with like the 24 hour news cycle has caused more problems than it solved, I think. Yeah. Uh, so there's just this intense immersion and then when we've got the internet to allow us to talk to our loved ones but it just it makes it harder to want to get extra information when you're always in there uh when it's always kind of in the back of your head when something springs it to the forefront and really just paints too detailed a picture it gets really unpleasant yeah and because you just you don't want to sit there worrying about someone you care about, even if you know in your head and in your heart that they're in a dangerous place. Like you're, you're a parent and you know that at any given moment, something could happen. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to sit there and worry about it all the time because you'll just it'll shut your life down. Yeah. So you want to be you want to have a healthy level of concern, but you don't want to know all the details until they're home safe. Yeah. And that's that's how it was for my family. They cared. But I couldn't expect them to shut their entire life down and just sit there in a state of panic for an entire year while I was gone. Mm-hmm. 
Now you seem uh, in reading your blog articles and stuff like that, you, you seem most comfortable when you're writing. It seems like that's, that's something that you have a passion for. So I imagine putting those little newsletters together was probably um, your way of escaping and, and uh, uh, having, having something to look forward to rather than thinking about getting hit with a mortar shell or something. It definitely, I have a tendency to see the negative in situations. And so I am incredibly grateful that I'm able to make jokes Mm. uh, because it's a coping mechanism for me. Uh, At any given moment, if something happens, I'm going to be in my head, your Debbie Downer character from Saturday Night Live or... I don't know how old your kids are, but if you ever saw Bubble Guppies, there was this one named Nani who was just this total nihilist, and I love him. <laughs> that, that's the one my grandson likes. So. <laughs> yeah, because he's just depressed, and I love it. Not yeah. your grandson, Nani. Also, maybe your grandson. <laughs> but I just I see these things through a negative lens so much, and being able to write and tell jokes, but also just write in a very conversational setting is a skill that I've fostered because it allows me to cope with the negativity uh, to make myself and others laugh through it. Mm. That's, uh, you know, I think that's what is the heart of a lot of comics because, uh, you know, I think we've talked about this, you know, we're all damaged in some way, even, even the ones that say, say they're not, uh, nobody would do this if you don't have something a little bit wrong with you. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, you know, even, even the, the wacky ones and even Jeff Dunham, we, we know there's something wrong with him. Well, and, yeah, he's, not <laughs> he's just a racist with puppets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that, that makes a lot of sense that, you know, that, that the writing, the writing part and expressing yourself, uh, helps to get through those negative thoughts. That makes a lot of sense. So, was your army stint, were you a two-year, four-year? Uh, I was supposed to do a five-year contract. Uh, I re-enlisted uh, about, about three and a half years in, and then I was a medical discharge about three months after that. Okay. Uh, so I did just under four years. Uh, I I liked the army. It was very structured. You knew what you were supposed to do nine times out of 10. So I, I found, I found peace in that. And I really, I thought I was good at it. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I don't know that I would have done 20, but I know I would have been happy to do eight um, at least. And I was very disappointed when the medical discharge happened. Mm -hmm. So when you got home, what did you do? I was a mess when I got home. Mm -hmm. Uh, like it just you, you heard on the album and you may have heard other shows where just the sense of purpose that I had when I got out of the army just disappeared. Uh, and I started doing retail management versus I, I was an interrogator. I had a security clearance. I was collecting intelligence and mm. interacting with suspected terrorists on a daily basis. And then I started folding pants Yeah, And it just, the sense of purpose evaporated, the sense of family evaporated. And so I started stand-up about three weeks after I got out. Okay. Uh, 
Colin Bullock is a comedian out of Chicago who I went to high school with. Um, and he was down visiting in Champaign and we went to an open mic to see him. And when we were walking back to the car, I told him just a couple of super dark army stories and he thought they were hilarious. Uh-huh. And he told me I should get up at the open mic the following week. So I did. Um, I spent a week writing out stories and jokes and it was fucking terrible. Uh, I had everything typed out in paragraph form, four pages typed sitting on the stool next to me. Uh. <laughs> uh, and the dark army stories were not well received. <laughs> there was a lot of silence and worried glances of, is he okay? Uh, uh-huh. But I got one really good laugh when I was telling a fairly close to true story about myself that was separate from the army. And that laugh made me really hungry to keep going. Uh, and it just, it seems dramatic to say that it saved my life during that time. But I think that it did because it gave me something every week to commit to going and doing. Mm. Uh, I got out with all of your standard uh, PTSD, mental health issues. And so being able to commit to doing something on a weekly basis, even if it was two minutes, it involved driving to go and see people who, uh, would notice if I was gone and it really mm. helped. It helped a lot. So it sounds like you kind of found your voice on how you wanted to present your comedy and what your material was going to be fairly early then. Uh, yeah, it, it was really less than a year till I realized that writing jokes is hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like talking about my life or things that have happened or my opinions and then punching that up is mm-hmm. a lot easier than coming up with a joke. Uh, it just, and it also, it's funnier when mm-hmm. I'm being who I am. Like I see comics who do complete characters on stage and it just seems exhausting. Uh, yeah. Like Larry, the cable guy is just the amount of work it has to be to get into the mindset of a different person and then write jokes from their perspective. Like regardless of what you think about Larry as, uh, as a joke writer, as a comedian, just Dan Whitney is not Larry the cable guy. Exactly. Yeah. So Dan Whitney has created a human being and has to write jokes as that human being. And that seems just hard. Yeah. And I, who I am on stage is an exaggerated version of myself, but it's still me. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's, it's a lot easier. It's also scarier because if a fan doesn't like Larry, the cable guy, Dan Whitney goes home and says, ah, fucking, they didn't like Larry. Yeah. Yeah. If I go home and I'm like, oh, well, they did not like Dan West. (laughs) (laughs) I can dig that. The, um. The one thing I've noticed, uh, just just because I'm older and remembering things, when I do stuff that is rooted in truth, I tend to remember my set better um, yeah. than than when I'm just pulling pulling a joke. And the the other thing is, I I'm the same as you. It's a lot easier for me to take a truth and and do a little 
punch with it, put some tags on it and have that be the bit rather than try to come up with something about like current events or something. It, it, it just seems to stick better with me. And then it's what you're comfortable with too. I, I can rant about current events, but I think there's also a little bit of laziness that comes into it because I don't want to write that many jokes. Yeah. If I, if I write a joke today about something Donald Trump said today, in four days, he will have said 20 other insane things and yeah. people won't remember yeah. what he did today. Yeah. Like it just, you were, do you remember he had stakes? He had Trump stakes. Yep. And <laughs> that wasn't that long ago, but it feels like 30 years. Yeah. Or like when he tried to buy the NFL. Yeah. Like these are, like it just, I, I have a bit that I did a while ago about Barack Obama. And the idea, like I remember I was in college and there was the lecture happening. And somebody said, oh, they're only only voting for Obama because he's smart. Yeah, fuck, good, good. Yeah. That's what you should be going for. <laughs> but, like, it's funny in this context, but it doesn't work now. If I went on stage and say, oh, people only voted for Obama because he was smart, and that's what you should be fucking doing. Yeah. It, it, it might get a laugh, but it wouldn't hit the same way. Right. So I, I can write a political joke, and I, I do a decent amount of that on Facebook, but... As far as on stage and what I'm building for who I am on stage, that I'm not going to say it's too hard, but it is a lot harder and there's a much narrower window for when. Right. Yeah. Writing material that you can take uh, with you for a number of years is a lot better than for a number of days. You know, it's, I mean, that stuff, like you said about Trump, I mean, you know, people are have already forgotten about uh, you know injecting injecting a disinfectant uh, in, into yourself somehow. You know, and you know, I wrote one about that, and by the time I was done writing it, I'd already seen it done about five times exactly the way I wrote it. So that also drives me so nuts. Like, I I hate when I'm on Facebook and I see comedians who i like and respect mm. but comedians writing the same jokes as non-comedians like, yeah if you think of a joke about donald trump it's probably done like yeah. at this point like i'm glad that snl has started to get away from like doing the alec baldwin donald trump thing a little bit yeah like you can do it on weekend update and that's fine but they at one point they were doing like two or three Donald Trump sketches a week. Yeah. It's too much. And the jokes that they were writing were stuff that like my dad randomly typed up. Uh huh. Yeah. He's a funny guy, but he's not a professional comedian. Right. Yeah. (laughs) You didn't take comedy very seriously for a while when you got serious. When did you feel like you were starting to get good and you wanted to really dig in and lean into it and make make it a part of your life um i got a booking that i didn't really deserve uh, i got a booking because one thing that i've usually been pretty good about is networking mm. i have fallen off of it a little bit in recent years just because i'm 
tired and busy all the time. Like I've been working <laughs> yeah. full time and then also trying to do stand up and trying to get back into going to school and also trying to have a family and like it's so I have not been and also living where I live, it's an hour to almost any show that I want to go to. So it's harder to justify working a ten hour day and then driving an hour to go to a show do the show and then hang out till midnight, drive an hour back and then work 10 hours the next day. Mm. But at the time I wasn't working the same hours and it was much, I was also younger. So it was easier to do the long hours. And so uh, I had a buddy who on a Wednesday night, he hit me up at like 5 PM and said, can you give me a ride to the airport on Friday morning? And I said, Absolutely. And then he said, cool, I'm, uh, I'm opening for Dat Fan all weekend at Tommy T's. Uh, I said, cool, yeah, I mean, I've got tickets for Wednesday. He said, awesome. Uh, I was going to give you free tickets for Thursday so we could just go. We, we can crash at my place on Thursday night. Uh, so I went Wednesday and I met, uh, I met Dat Fan that night. And my buddy talked me up huge. And so when I'm driving home, I get a phone call from that offering me a guest spot on Saturday. And then on Thursday, that's when Dat finds out that my buddy who is emceeing from all weekend is leaving town. Oh, it was seven shows in five days and Kabir did Wednesday and Thursday, but then he was leaving because he got a spot on the world series of poker, um, mm. on the amateur tables. Yeah. And so, uh, that, is one of the nicest people I've ever met, but he is also just this fucking ball of anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> I me- I remember him on last comic standing. He was, he was very focused. Yeah. <laughs> and so he finds out at his merch table on Thursday night that, uh, Kabir is leaving and he's like, well, who, who am I going to get to MC for me? And Kabir goes, fuck it. Have Dan do it. And mm. he looks at me and goes, can you do it? And he's like, well, yeah, yeah, I, I I can do it. And that first show, I ate shit. Like the hosting stuff went fine because mm. that's, that's muscle memory. That's, oh, you got a great show for you tonight. Next comic, blah, try the veal, whatever. Yeah. But the joke portion went really badly. And I was terrified that I was going to get fired. Mm. And so I busted my ass before the second show. And then through the rest of the weekend to just refine my material. And then I started working so much harder after that because I didn't want to be embarrassed. And I liked it and wanted like, it's, I mean, you've done weekend shows at the drop now. Uh, and that feeling, the difference between an open mic and the Friday night late show is, oh God, it feels so good. Yeah, yeah. Like open mic is great fun. Love an open mic, but to have 70, 80, 90, 150 people there for comedy, having drinks, they paid money to get in to see the show and they are laughing at your jokes feels so fucking good. Yeah. And it just it made me just sort of turn around all of the not trying I was doing and I started putting in work, started writing writing i started doing more open mics started trying harder and it's 
it's paid off at this point, but it was hard for a while. Yeah, no doubt. It's funny. Just about everybody I talk to that has seen any success in stand up, uh, they have a story similar to yours where they got they got put into a situation that they weren't ready for and they were able to make something of it and that's why they got better and and even um uh even Dreesen talks about that that you know he got put into a couple places that he didn't deserve to be and um that that brought him brought him up and took him to the next level so that's really cool so when you're um getting a little bit more serious about it what i mean Obviously, you're working, but what are you doing as far as uh, comedy work? Did you get with an agency? Did you just start um, with your networking and getting some uh, feature-type time, or how did that work out for you? Uh, so representation is my next step. Uh, I'm not there, but I feel like with the album and a little bit more club work, uh, it is a reasonable next step to... Uh, now that I'm making a little bit more money with stand-up, I can afford to start paying someone to start finding me gigs. Mm, right. Uh, but what I did, I just, I tried to make the right friends. Uh, I, when I first moved back to the Midwest, I managed a comedy club briefly, and that set me up with some just great, both business contacts and friends. I met Tyson, uh, mm-hmm. Tyson Cox, he was the box office guy for the comedy club that I was managing. Why are sh- my cat is just doing laps now. <laughs> just run, literally running in circles around me. <laughs> but uh, Tyson has become a lifelong friend. And then Chris Shaw was the first headliner to ever take me on the road with him. I met Ryan Niemiller through that comedy club. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met, uh, just some really, really funny people. Colin Bohannon was a Chicago comic. I met him uh, through the comedy club. And then through Colin, I met Thelonious Monk. Okay. So I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time to meet a lot of good people. And that put me onto a lot of stages that I wouldn't otherwise have been able to get onto. And I just kept building my time. Um, and I ran a room in uh, in Berkeley for a little while before I moved out here. And that gave me the opportunity to get on stage once a week for a longer set. And then uh, through Chris Shaw, I met Steve Sabo, a booker out of Toledo, who he is also a comic. He headlines all over the place, but uh, he books rooms all over the country. Mm. And I got in with him. And then I got on to Gilda's Laugh Fest because Chris Shaw recommended it for me. Um, And so it really, I I worked my ass off, but there was also a good chunk of right place at the right time. Yeah, that's another common thread. uh, But there's also the... uh, the old saying, the harder you work, the luckier you get, too. So that's... Oh, 100%. And yeah. there's people who work a lot harder. Tyson works so much harder than I do. Mm-hmm. Like, I I am striving to get his work ethic. Yeah. Um, and then, like, Cameron Cooper out of Fort Wayne. I, I cannot sing his praises enough. That man, he lives an hour and a half 
northeast of me, and then I will run into him at an open mic in Greenwood that he wow. drove three hours to get to, or uh, he'll come out to the drop and just what he's got a really unique voice. He's very, very funny and he works so fucking hard. And when he gets more time, he's going to be a force. Yeah. Uh, because he just, he's incredibly nice, incredibly gracious. So he's pleasant to be around and he, he will always have a spot on one of my stages. Yeah. But he also just works so fucking hard. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed, I've noticed that about him. He's, uh, all over the place and, uh, yeah. and you know, working, and uh, just it's just what uh, comics do. Nobody understands the fact that, you know, you're working a full day and then you're driving three hours to do five minutes and driving three hours home and getting up and going to work. So it's it's tough. And then like the getting booked side of it is its own nightmare. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I've got a friend in Seattle who wants me to come out to visit. And I said, absolutely. The one catch is like I can't justify just going to visit at this point. Like I, I am working. I'd have to take time off work. I've got a lot of friends there that I do want to see, but I got to do a show. I got to make a little bit of money. Mm. I, don't, I don't need to make money, but I need to not be several hundred dollars in the hole. Yeah. Uh, and so she said, cool, I'll find you a show. And about two weeks later, so I'm having a lot of trouble. How do you do this? <laughs> <laughs> I get just, it's being on stage is the reward for all the other work that you do. Being yeah. on stage is so much fun most of the time, but there's so many other moving parts that range anywhere from being kind of inconvenient to really sucking. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I dig that. Um, so thinking about uh, the album, uh, once again, the album is uh, not too friendly, but prompt and polite available on all the outlets uh if you can't afford to buy it just stream it all night on spotify uh so dan can earn a nickel uh (laughs) (laughs) but uh thinking about that what you know what what events came up that you said okay now i feel like i need to record an album oh man i uh i actually wrote a blog about this the week of the release uh i tried to record an album three, three, four other times over the years before this recording. And uh, the first time was a great recording. There were some people, not a huge crowd, but it was what much too big a room. And then I listened to my set and it just wasn't good enough for me to release. Okay. Uh, that was actually, I want to say, I think I saw it on Facebook uh, memories. It was this past weekend, six years ago. Uh, I was not nearly a good enough comic to put out an album. Um, but one of the other common threads that I'm sure you've run into is a little bit of conceit, some arrogance. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, I'm the funniest guy in the world. Of course I'm going to put out an album, but I, yeah. didn't, I didn't have enough material to do an hour. I did an hour and it was fine. It mm. was it wasn't good, but it wasn't the worst thing in the world, but it wasn't good enough for me to justify selling. And also I wasn't doing enough shows where I was able to sell merch to have an album to sell. Yeah. <laughs> and then about uh, four years ago, I 
did a recording at Bear's Place down in Bloomington. And it was awesome. The show was so good. There were about 95 people into a room that comfortably holds 80. Um, mm. <laughs> and the energy was explosive. It was such a good show. Uh, sold a bunch of merch. But the equipment that they had was not set up for an album recording. And I didn't have enough money to get better equipment. Okay. So our crowd mic was just a regular microphone in the back of the room pointing forward. Yeah. And it just, it was a disaster. It didn't go well. Um, I got a couple of video clips that I used for booking for a little while out of it. Uh-huh. But as far as an album went, it just wasn't going to work. Yeah. Um, That's too bad. I, yeah. It was, <laughs> it was disappointing. I tried two other times in Fort Wayne and just nobody showed up. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really. I've got a lot of friends in Fort Wayne now, but at the time, I only knew one guy. Yeah, uh, and just nobody showed. So when I did the one at the drop, I didn't announce that it was an album recording. Uh, like Jim booked me for the weekend, and it wasn't until about eight weeks out that I decided to do it as an album recording. I found a guy, mm. a professional guy. Uh, Dave Ossenbau out of Galvest, and he runs Mix It Recordings. He did a killer job. He was super easy to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't, I got Heather's permission, and she was into it. We didn't end up announcing that it was an album recording because by then I was superstitious. Um, we didn't announce it until I did radio that week mm-hmm. on Thursday. That's when we announced it on Facebook. We put it on the radio and thankfully it went really, really well. But uh, I was very paranoid that it was going to go just as badly as everything else did. Cause so many things can go wrong. Uh, I don't know. Zach Boyce did a recording. Yeah. And Zach is crazy funny. I had him on yeah. the show. He's, he's awesome. But apparently there was a really, really drunk heckler lady that ruined a section of the recording. Mm-hmm. So there's a million things that could go wrong. And I'm very, very lucky that none of them hit this most recent time. Yeah. Yeah. And you recorded that over two nights. Did you, um, when no, you're done, man, you did <laughs> it, you did it one and done. I did it one and done. Oh, okay. Was, so worried it was going to go badly. <laughs> okay. Did you do the Friday show or the Saturday yeah, show for the album? I did, uh, I did the Friday show. Okay. Uh, because I knew that if I had done a show on Saturday, I wouldn't have been able to properly enjoy anything up until that point. I was just, yeah, I, w- I was just like that fan. I was a ball of nerves and anxiety. Mm. So as far as nuts and bolts are concerned, when you get somebody, obviously you want somebody professional to record it for you. Did you do your own editing and uh, put your tracks together and name them and all that by yourself? Or how did that work? Uh, so after the recording, a couple weeks later, I met with him at his studio and we played through and set track points and set mm. stuff to cut out because there was, there were always going to be a little bit of stuff, some asides, um, when I did my merch pitch shouldn't be on the album. Yeah. Um, I did a bunch of thank yous that would have been nice to have on the album, but they wouldn't have fit the sort of vibe. Yeah. So he and I, over the course of about two hours, set all of the the edit points and all the tracks 
And then when he finished doing that, he sent it to me and that's, I named the tracks myself. I listened through the album and figured out what I thought were the best names to identify what was on each individual track. Mm-hmm. When you go into putting this into distribution and I'm just talking nuts and bolts stuff, uh, what, what does it take to get that, that master track to distribution so you can actually sell it on iTunes and Amazon and it shows up on Spotify and all that? So there's a bunch of different companies that will do it for you. Okay. Um, I am not thrilled with the company that I used. Okay. Uh, I know Patrick Murray used DistroKid and really likes them. Um, I did not use them. So the company that I used, uh, it was it's like 50 bucks a year for hosting, which mm. is not bad by any means. And right. I keep 100% of sales uh, beyond whatever uh, cut the different stores keep. Mm. So... This company is definitely not a, a bad company as far as money goes, but as far as timing, they're terrible. Okay. So it's on a two-month delay. <laughs> wow. So I still haven't seen the reports, much less the money, from the album release show and any sales that have come since then. I know that uh, at, for the first two days, at three separate times, I hit... 10th place on iTunes comedy chart. So I know I'm getting the sales. Mm-hmm. It hit 10th, then it dropped down to 15th, then it hit 10th again, then it dropped down to 20th, then it hit 10th again. So the sales are there. I just yeah. don't know what they are because I haven't seen the report. And I'll see that money uh, end of June. Wow. And so what I have had more luck with doing as far as uh, getting getting the money now um, and a slightly higher percentage, I use drop cards as well. Those are going to be what I sell uh, at shows. Mm. I can make card copies, but those are a pain to carry around and not that many people are listening to uh, an actual CD anymore. Right. Uh, so drop car- cards is a great company. Uh, it comes on a little business card shaped thing. And on one side, it's got, the album cover and on the other side, it's got all the digital download instructions Mm -hmm. and that it was $130 for 150 cards. And I had them in like six days. And so when people buy on my album or buy on my website, uh, I will email them the digital download uh, code Mm -hmm. within 24 hours. So I get a bigger chunk of that money and it also comes to me a lot faster. Right. Because when they buy on my uh, on my website, it goes through Squarespace and comes directly to my PayPal. Right, right, cool. So this going back this uh, th- this hosting company that is where your album is ho- hosted. So not only are they hosting, but they are taking all the proceeds that you make from uh, the different sales and they put it into a coffer and then you get it at the end of June. Is that how that works? Yeah. So I went through this company and they are, they distributed to like 400 different stores. Uh, like it's, it's on title. I, I don't <laughs> anticipate anyone's going to look for me on title. Uh, yeah. But it's on 400 is an exaggeration, but it's like 30 different stores. Yeah. Uh, and 
So the main places to purchase are Amazon and iTunes, but then there's also streaming on Spotify and all the others. And so they get the reports roughly every two months, they say. Uh, And so iTunes will generate all of their sales and send that money over. Uh, And then once the iTunes sends the money over, then it gets released to me. Mm, Okay. That's, that's a process. (laughs) Yeah. It, when, if I'm lucky enough to get representation, and or a label, mm. then they will handle a lot of that. But uh, doing it independently, there's definitely a lot of moving pieces that yeah. can be kind of a pain. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's a great album. I listened through it, and it's so funny. It's There is so much on it I've never heard you do. Um, and I, like I said, I learned a lot about you just – by listening to it, even though we've talked and I, I thought it was, it, it really went together. Well, do you mind if I play a track? Yeah, go for it, man. Uh, um, so the, the stuff about working in retail, just, uh, it, <laughs> I, I totally understand that because I worked in restaurants and retail for gosh, like 10, 15 years. Uh, Everybody so be required to do it. For yeah. A and, and you're right, uh, th- this track kind of puts it in perspective, so I'm going to run this one. I don't, I don't want you guys to get the wrong idea and think that the worst part of my retail job was corporate or my bosses or my employees. The worst part of any retail job yep. is the customers, <laughs> obviously. Um, anyone that's worked retail can tell you that. And if you haven't worked retail, you're probably a bad person. Like it's... <laughs> I don't make the rules. I just aggressively inform you of them. (laughs) I I once had a woman threaten to burn my store down because I would not give her a 10% discount on a $3 shirt. (laughs) The story ended with her getting the discount (laughs) because I didn't care. Like if she, she didn't, she, she escalated way too quickly. She didn't have to go to arson. Like she could have just said, come on. And like, she would have got the discount. It's not coming out of my bonus. Also, I'm drunk. I don't care. But she went for broke. That is just, that is retail in a nutshell. I mean, the the customers are definitely the worst part. Um, sometimes they're the best part. I mean, they're in retail and restaurants. There, I had a lot of people I like that were customers, and uh, you know, I worked at a place. Uh, well, I was I was at Aldi's as a manager for a while, and that was the worst. Uh, but um, after that, I was at Gordon Food Service for. Uh, I don't know, three or four years. And uh, those customers, they're either really nice or really nasty. And oh, there, there was some of them that were really cool, but that just, that's retail in a nutshell. I mean, if anybody wants to know what it's like, just play that track and <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. I, I do not. I, I think the job that I have to remind myself regularly that I hated was bartending. Um, I love making drinks. I love interacting with the cool customers, but I I always miss bartending until I talk to a bartender. Mm. Uh, And then 
they'll tell some stories and I'll tell some of my stories. And I remember, Oh yeah, no, that was terrible. I, yeah. like, I, I had one great bartending job. It was really nice. <coughs> excuse me. Upscale like martini bar. And the two bartenders were me and this just beautiful girl. And we had a really good system where every man that came in was her customer. Mm. And every woman that came in was my customer. And we just we both made great money. Nobody got too drunk. If they did get too drunk, it was kind of the endearing drunk. Yeah. And I am sure that she dealt with way more horrible shit than I did because <sighs> drunk rich dudes in a martini bar are going to be awful to a pretty girl. Uh-huh. But she never complained, so I didn't hear about it. And I didn't think about it until more recently. But like I would get the... 45, 50, 55 year old woman whose husband hasn't looked at her in six months. And she mm. appreciated that I was 24 and in decent shape and talking to her and listening to what she actually had to say. Yeah. So I would make cool drinks and I would have fun conversations. But then from there, I went to a college bar and it was the worst experience of my life. Yeah. I, second, I mean, Iraq, but it was. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it was. Lots of shots, lots of popping beers open, more being a bouncer than a bartender. Yeah. And I don't miss that at all. Yeah. I, uh, it's, it's funny. I worked, uh, in the eighties, I worked, uh, for Hacienda and it, it's a Mexican restaurant around here. And, uh, yeah, we have in Kokomo as well. yeah. And I spent very little time behind the bar. Um, but every once in a while I'd go pull beers or something like that when they were getting busy. And, uh, same thing. Most of what I had to do was play bouncer uh, because people would get stupid. Um, and the yeah. funny thing is, is I was an Elkhart, and so they they came in drunk. Um, it, it wasn't. It, they weren't getting drunk at the bar. They started out that way, and uh, they got a couple drinks on them before the server understood, and then the server cuts them off, and then it's a in your face type fight, and then I had to step in and do my thing. So that, that, that was fun. That was a lot of fun. (laughs) That's that's one word for it. Uh, I remember I had a situation where it was the end of the night. uh, And it was when I was living in California and in California, when it comes to being out of the bar, it's not the bar closes at two. It's everybody out the door at two. If there's anybody in the bar, who's not, an employee at two o'clock, you start getting fines. Mm-hmm. So the bar would do last call at one thirty, lights on at one forty-five. everybody out the door by one fifty, one fifty-five to make sure that we were safe. So lights go on and there's this group of people playing beer pong, which is fucking gross. Don't play beer pong in a bar. If you're going to play beer pong in a bar, put water in the cups because if that ball touches the floor of a bar, it's just ugh, fucking gross. But so they would like these guys would be playing beer pong. And I remember I went over there. Hey, guys, time to go. And they just ignored me for a second. And then I said, no, guys, it's time to go. And I started to just like it it was a shitty college bar. There were plastic cups started sweeping them onto the floor because I didn't give a shit. We were going to have to mop anyway. Yeah. And one of the guys tries to hand me a glass of wine and says, this is worth more than you make in an hour. You can have this glass of wine. First off, it wasn't. I made very good money. But second, fuck you. So, <laughs> so I take the glass and I throw that on the floor. I didn't throw the glass, but I 
splashed the glass on the floor, and I set the glass down. Uh-huh. And then this guy takes his beer and just starts sipping it. And one of his friends says, you know who this guy is? And this was during the Summer Olympics at the time. Uh-huh. And I have a general rule where if somebody says, do you know who I am or do you know who this guy is? It automatically means I don't give a fuck. Like, yeah. 100%. I don't care. If I already don't know who you are, you're not going to impress me. Mm-hmm. So he says, I qualified for the Olympics in boxing. And I said, well, why weren't you there? Was it, was it too far? <laughs> like, what, what's the problem here, buddy? Uh- <laughs> and... Then one of them says that this kid's the captain of the University of California Berkeley boxing team. And I replied, oh, man, captain of the boxing team at an academic school. Crazy. <laughs> and so as they're leaving, they're talking shit. As they're, but they're leaving, so I don't mm-hmm. care. But as the night goes on and we're cleaning, I get madder and madder. So the next day, I called the athletic director of University of California Berkeley. And I said had an altercation with the captain of the boxing team last night. Want to let you know to please let them know boxing team banned from Kips. About <laughs> an hour later, I get a call from someone who says, yeah, I'm the captain of the Cal boxing team. Uh, who were you talking to yesterday? Oh, <laughs> and I tell him the name of the guy and he goes, Oh fuck. I know him. We're going to handle this. <laughs> and so like, I never saw the other guy again in my head. I didn't get someone killed, but I probably did get. Yeah. Killed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I think you and I are maybe a little bit alike. I really avoid that type of job or that type of situation. Be- not because I'm scared of confrontation. I'm scared of what I will do when I'm oh, in yeah. a confrontation. You know, I, 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 I'm capable of it. I don't want to get pushed. So yeah. I avoid. Yeah. It's funny. I was trying to explain that, you know, Max Tidy's a mutual friend of ours. I was trying to explain that to Max and he's like, oh, there's no way you've got anger issues and rage issues. And I'm like, <laughs> you have no idea who I am. <laughs> like it just, there's, there's wisdom that comes with age. And one of the things yeah. about wisdom is you learn some self-control. When I yeah. was a kid, I would fly off the handle at nothing. Yeah. And I, I am better at stopping myself from doing that now. Yeah. I'm better at channeling it into something else. Right. In the comedy. Yes. Yeah. Usually. Usually. <laughs> <laughs> so this is something I ask just about everybody. Um, what three things do you know now about comedy that you wish you would have known at the beginning? Uh, shocking isn't funny. Um, funny is funny. Shocking is not funny. Um, mm-hmm. funny Funny can be shocking, but at its core, shocking is not funny. Uh, and you're not really going to shock an audience now because right. they can see everything on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, uh, if there's not a joke attached to something, you don't have to say it. Uh, before I had jokes about being military, I would just say that I was military for the cheap applause. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's cheap. It doesn't actually build anything. Like they don't trust me to be funnier because I'm military. They're just clapping because they know that they're supposed to, it doesn't actually do anything for the relationship. Right. Uh, and I, I guess the third one is that even though this isn't a traditional job, you do still have to work at it. Uh, that you're, you're not going to sit there at a desk for 40 hours a week and write down knock, knock jokes, but you do still have to work. It's a muscle. It's, it's more like working out than it is like a job, but you mm-hmm. still have to 
work at it. Right. And that's something when I first started, I expected, ah, you know, people always tell me I'm funny in six weeks, I'll be on comedy central. And (laughs) even then I knew it was naive. Now I realize how stupid it was. Right. And I just, I I wish that I had known that. Yeah. It's, it's funny. You talk about the, uh, uh, it being a job. And the funny thing is, is, you know, part of your album, title is prompt and polite and you are one of those people that show up when you're supposed to and uh you take your commitment seriously i still talk to you know comics uh i talk to bookers and stuff like that that they you know there are still comics out there that think they're too cool to show up on time to um uh uh take a bath before they come do their set you know thing things like that and the funny thing about comedy is it's you are going to get booked at the same place twice if you do all the right things, but you're only going to get it once if you, if you act like an idiot and show up late or whatever. Well, I had a show in Kokomo a few years ago that uh, I was supposed to MC and I had Trent Mabry as a guest set. Have you met Trent out of Indianapolis? I have not met him. I've seen his name. Uh, really, really funny guy. I like, he's got a very dry style that I like. Uh, and he was supposed to be a guest set. And then I had a comic coming in who was bringing his own feature from uh, Dayton mm-hmm. and they didn't show up. Um, I had talked to them earlier. I talked to the headliner earlier in the day. He was really pumped. I finally get a hold of the feature and he says, yeah, I told, uh, I told the headliner I wasn't going to be able to be there. Like two weeks ago, I told him, he said he was going to find somebody else. Mm. Headliner never showed up. Uh, and so that, that headliner will never get booked again. Yeah. Meanwhile, Trent and I figured it out. We did a two man show. Trent opened, I closed. And so Trent is another one who, if I ever have a stage, he is welcome to perform on it because he, has done several shows for me and always approaches it with a lot of professionalism. And he came through for me in a huge way that night. Like mm. he was supposed to do five minutes and instead he did 30. <laughs> like, That's great. Yeah. It was, it was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, thinking about the, uh, the comics that are really popular today. Do you, do you have any of them that you really look up to and you aspire to be like them? Uh, most of the comics, like, but there's the hitters that I like. Obviously I like Bill Burr a lot. Mm -hmm. Chad Daniels is just a monster. He is so funny. Uh, but, uh, some of the best comics I've ever seen are the ones who are still hungry for it. They're still looking for, they've had some success, but they're still looking for that break. Uh, did you watch the album release show? No. Uh, so on that show was Sammy Obeyed, who is probably the most talented comedian I've ever seen. Uh, he is a brilliant writer. He uh, he was on Conan. He's done a bunch of stuff with Playboy TV. Uh, he was on America's Got Talent. He was on Last Comic Standing. He's got a show on Netflix right now called 100 Humans. Okay. Uh, but he also has the world record for most consecutive days doing stand-up. He did a thousand and one nights in a row, never missing a set. Sometimes wow. like there were a couple of nights where he would just run into a pub randomly and be like, look, I'm going for a world record. I've got my documentarian here. Uh, I've got my PA. I can't find someplace else. Can I just set up in the corner of your room 
and do 15 minutes. And usually they would say yes. And like the amount of work that he put in when he was already incredibly talented has just taken him fuck every, like he's amazing. Mm. And his good friend Kabir Singh uh, is probably the most naturally talented comedian I've ever seen. Mm. I watched Kabir yell at an audience into laughing at him. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And since then, he's done some voice acting on Family Guy. He was on Gabriel Iglesias, uh, Stand Up Revolution. Uh And uh, those two guys, in addition to being incredibly funny, are just kind people. Mm. They were the two that started putting me on showcases. Kabir is the one who I took to the airport that got me on with that fan. Um, Mm. So they are tremendously funny. It's Kabir Singh and Sammy Obeyed. And I, tremendously funny and very nice people. Mm. Um, I also really like Kate Willett. Um, She does a lot of stuff with the Let's Comedy guys. And she... Mm. uh, Recently, had an album come out, and she's also on uh, Netflix. She's got one of those fifteen-minute specials. Mm. So those three, there's there's a million tremendously funny people, but I I really aspire to be like the ones that are talented and also just nice, right? Uh, so like I, I adore Chad Daniels, Chris Shaw, uh, but it's the people who have not quite made it that are crushing it for me. Right. And one, one thing about you is that, um, you know, knowing you, you are one of those people who, um, first of all, you give honest feedback, um, which is really hard for a comic to get. Um, especially when you're in your hometown most of the time and not traveling around and comics just, I mean, they're, they're very, um, internal inside themselves and they, they're not thinking about what other comics are doing and i've always appreciated the fact that not only with me but i see you do it with other comics you give honest feedback and well, really um, that, just doing it for one person like hey, yeah so yeah thing you did, didn't like it uh okay yeah. next comic yeah you're great <laughs> yeah <laughs> but that's that's really that's a trait that um First of all, it's really good for networking, and it's also good to get people on your side. So, uh, you know, I re- I've really appreciated that about you. The other, the other thing about what you said um, when when I started this podcast, I knew I wanted to get a certain amount of quote famous people uh, just just to get people to listen. Um, but my core, you know, I'm trying to do like an eighty twenty thing. I want working comics that have uh seen some form of success uh either either being booked or doing an album or whatever the 80 percent, i just want you guys that are really working and and trying trying to get to that next step and 20 percent of the people who are already um they've made it and they're and they're fine because you know you guys are the ones that are going to give the best advice because the other ones are pretty far away from when they were learning how to do the craft. So, you know, yeah. that's, a, that, that's really what this podcast is about. So you, you fit right into that for sure. Well, well this is great. Um, <laughs> I, I enjoy talking to you today. Um, yeah. So the uh, um, album is uh, not too friendly, but prompt and polite. Uh, obviously available pretty much wherever you type that in. Uh, along with Dan West's name. 
And uh, I always tell people, you know, if you like something, buy it because that's the only way the comic gets paid. Um, they can listen to you for, I think, probably a month straight on uh, Spotify and you haven't earned a dollar yet. Uh, that's, that's some of the new and that's very disappointing. <laughs> yeah. Some of the facts I get from musicians. Uh, uh, so I actually do a hack where when I go to bed at night, I put somebody's album on repeat uh, yeah. on Spotify and just keep playing it. And they're like, well, thanks. You might in a year make me a dime or a quarter or something like that. I've but also people. Yeah. Also getting, getting the plays helps get you, put you up the charts and get seen more too. But really, really appreciate you having on the show. Um, I actually forgot to go off live uh, while we were talking. So everybody got the whole show, but uh, this, this will be on the podcast sometime. I'm banking a lot of episodes right now. So uh, this will come out uh, sometime this year for sure. Uh, (laughs) And uh, I appreciate you being on the show. Thanks buddy. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I had I had a good time. I'm going to go off live here real quick. It's still Maybe live. Maybe I won't. <laughs> It'll just let me end the broadcast and see.